All right, good morning. I love this topic. I absolutely love uh, thinking about, uh, processing about, thinking about singing, worshiping, and song. Um, Alex uh, already mentioned this. The, the emails might have been a little bit misleading. Uh, we were going to kind of start from ground from the first day here talking about a particular hymn and working this through the theology of it. But we both uh, kind of were back and forth about it and thought it was a good idea to lay a foundation first of what is the essence of true worship. What is worship in and of itself? Um, and so when we get to that, uh, we're going to primarily deal with that today, and I'm going to kind of lay that out before you. If you don't have a sheet, uh, we're going to be dancing around a good bit in the scriptures, uh, so please have your Bibles close at hand, and if, you need, if anybody needs a sheet, just raise your hand. I spread them out as much as I could. You got one? You need some more? I hope I got enough. But So... Um, Thinking about worship and the theology of worship, specifically with music, um, there's a lot of different directions we could go, right? There's a whole lot that we could talk about as, uh, as far as the aesthetics of music, the style of music, what kind of music, what kind of music might be appropriate in worship, vice maybe not so much appropriate in worship. Uh, there's a lot that we could talk about hymnody, contemporary, traditional, all these kinds of things. We are not really going to go down that road today. Uh, we're going to deal primarily this morning with the issue of the heart, which is what the scriptures primarily deal with. And then we're going to, in the first half, we're going to take that from the Old Testament. So I might kind of go down a direction, might surprise you a little bit. We're going to go to the Old Testament, a particular story um, uh, from Numbers chapter 16. So you can go ahead and flip there in your Bible. And we'll start with that. And we'll talk about this concept of a sacrifice, a Levitical sacrifice in that sense. And what does it mean to present or bring a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And then after the first half of this, we're going to go into the second half, which is going to deal with the external expression. So I kind of labeled it first, the internal reality or the essence of worship internally, and then the external expression of that internal reality, which comes primarily in two ways we see scripture. That's the fruit of lips and the fruit of hands, what we do and what we say or sing. So when we talk about why we sing, we're going to talk about some of the more musical implications of the, that particular part of worship. All right. Um, so, again, let's, uh, before we open God's word, it's always important to do so in prayer. So please bow your heads and hearts with me. Lord, speak for your servants are listening. We desire to worship you with true hearts, with true obedient hearts, and to be pleasing in your sight. Help us to do so today. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple uh, questions just to kind of prod your thinking a little bit. At the top of your page there, is all music offered to God in worship acceptable? Is all music offered to God and worship acceptable. Other things to think about. Do the scriptures address worship songs rarely or frequently? What do y'all think about that? Three answers. Do the scriptures address worship song rarely or frequently? Frequently, right? Why? What verses can you think of? Yeah, maybe the whole book of Psalms, right? There's a whole book of the Bible dedicated, which is Israel's hymn book, in a sense. We don't know a lot about it musically, but it is meant to be sung and meant to be a guide and help for worshiping God, right? There's all kinds of examples all throughout Scripture, not just of worship, but of worship in song. There's Moses' song after the Exodus, after passing through the Red Sea. There's a song of Deborah and Barak after they had victory over their enemies, and singing and celebrating what God had done on Israel's behalf. There's the Magnificat, Mary's song, right? which is meant as a song, glorifying God about what he had said to her, marveling at all that he had said was going to come to pass with her. There's all kinds of stuff throughout Scripture. So it says a lot, okay? 
What about this next question? Do they grant worship? Does the scripture grant worship song a significant or insignificant role in the life of the believing assembly? It's kind of parroting off the second question, right? A little bit of rhetorical at this point. It's significant. It is incredibly significant. And I think sometimes we tend to have a little bit of a flippancy towards worship music. It's like, well, it's just it's purely a matter of preference, of style, of those kinds of things. But this mode, this form of worship, the presentation of a sacrifice to God that is pleasing, I think we should give it the same due regard and respect and seriousness as we do the Lord's Supper. The same we do with the preaching of his word. The same we should do. Not the same one is more important than the other. God has elevated the preaching of his word as most important in that sense. But we should treat it with a seriousness that whatever we do, whatever we bring to the Lord, we should do so carefully and thoughtfully. All right. So with that to kind of jog our minds, let's think about true worship, the inner essence. Numbers chapter 16. All right. We're going to deal with this issue of a sacrifice and what, it, what does it mean. So Numbers chapter 16 just to keep us engaged here too, 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says, Now whatever, now these things happen to them, talking about Israel, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So these things were written for you and I, for our instruction, all of these things, more than just this particular story, but all of this is to teach us and instruct us. So let's start at Numbers chapter 16, and I'll kind of give you a flavor. By the way, what I'm going to focus on is not exactly the primary point of this story. The primary point of Korah's rebellion is rebellion against godly instituted authority. And that's not what we're really dealing with here, but there's a part in here that I want you to want to draw attention to, and I think it'll be a blessing for us as we consider the rest of the topic of this subject. Verse 1. Now Korah, the son of Yitzar, son of Koath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves against, together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this. Take censers, Korah, and all his company. Put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the holy one. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. We're going to continue. We're not going to go through the rest of this story, but I want you to I'll draw particular attention to a phrase here. When, it's, when Moses responds, he fell on his face and he said to Koran's company, do this in the morning, the Lord will show who is his. And what does this say what the Lord will do to those whom he chose as his, who are pleasing in his sight? The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. This is fascinating. That phrase, bring near, is the Hebrew word korban. Have you heard that before? Korban? Where might you have heard that? In the New Testament. Exactly. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addresses this with a later issue of this particular issue. But that word korban is a Levitical word for sacrifice, offering. It's used all throughout the book of Leviticus and Numbers. And here it's translated draw near. And we're going to look at that's a particular aspect of the Levitical concept of a sacrifice. Every time you start studying worship music and praising the Lord, you can't help but sometimes getting re-engaged with this phrase, bring a sacrifice of praise. To God. We see that in Hebrews, and we'll deal with that kind of in the second phase of this, a sacrifice of praise. 
And that harkens back to this Levitical terminology, korban, sacrifice. So when we look at this word korban, it is laden with meaning, laden with meaning for us as well as for them. This is God through this Levitical system trying to beat into a Bronze Age tribal nomadic people how to worship him in a way that is pleasing to him, God who ordains these things. So we're going to look at five fundamental principles of an acceptable sacrifice, korban. And as we read this, as we think through this, think of it a little bit less with the Levitical side of it, but think about how it applies to us when we draw near to God to offer to him a sacrifice of praise that is pleasing to him. And it has to do with the heart. The first principle here is that it is an ordinance. It is an ordinance. What do I mean by that? It's ordained, in a sense. The Lord alone ordains how he is to be worshipped. It is something instituted by God, who God says how we are to approach him and draw near to him. We are not to worship the Lord in our own way or in any other way. Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 32. I'll flip there. Deuteronomy 12, 29 to 32. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. God is very explicit about this, right? None, this is another point of this, that is an ordinance. None is to draw near to him whom he has not called or in any manner other than that which he had prescribed. We're not to draw near to him unless the Lord calls. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. You can flip there, I'll read. This is talking about Nadab and Abihu, another incident of offering to God worship that was not ordained by God. Now Dadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So this is something they did that was not explicitly commanded. And fire came out from the before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Another point of this is the offering of sacrifices according to the law was strictly confined to the temple in Jerusalem. With the earthly temple destroyed, there is no means and ability to bring a physical offering or physical korban, a sacrifice in this case. There's more to this later. God's ordinances are not to be conscripted to serve human ends. And this is what Jeff was talking about in Mark chapter 7. Let's go ahead and flip there real quick too. Told you we'd be skipping around. Mark 7, 9 to 13. And Jesus, and he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. 
So they were using this concept of korban, saying instead of taking care of my parents like I was supposed to, to provide for them, they're going to say, oh, it's dedicated to the Lord. And that way, and there was kind of a quid pro quo thing to avoid, to skirt what God really desired, was honor, it was a go do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Right? So it's an ordinance. It's ordained by God. God says how we are to approach him. The second point, we must approach. And this is important. We must approach. It is an approach. That, act, that word korban, actually, it literally, at its root, can mean near or near, near. It's kind of a double thing. And Alex and they probably speak better to this. But when you look at it, it's like, it's like a, to approach an approach. It's a drawing intimately near to God. Okay? One must draw near to bring a sacrifice, a korban, an offering. Offerings are not sent. They're not relayed. They're not deposited or left, but they must be brought. This isn't, some, this isn't something we just come drop off or we give to somebody else to bring to God. We have to draw near to bring the sacrifice. The only proper aim of sacrifice is to draw near to God. Draw near to God. All else is vain. Let's look at Leviticus real quick again. Leviticus 1, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, Many, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. And then 729 to 30. Leviticus 729 to 30. Speak to the people of Israel, saying, Whoever offers a sacrifice of his peace offerings to the Lord shall bring his offering to the Lord from the sacrifice of his peace offerings. His own hands shall bring the Lord's food offering. He shall bring the fat with the breast, that the breast may be waved as a wave offering before the Lord. So we got to bring it. Third principle, it must be a sacrifice. One does not come before God empty-handed. It's a sacrifice. It has to cost something. Okay? That's why it says bring the sacrifice of the livestock. Don't go grab a wild animal and bring it to the Lord. The livestock is domesticated. It's something we own. It's a part of what we have. So they would have to take it and bring it. It would cost them something to bring that before the Lord. Also, it harkens back to 1 Chronicles 21. Do you remember David when he was with Ornan the Jebusite and was purchasing the threshing field of Arunu all that to, to pay for that? And he offered, said, here, take it. Take all of it and give it to the Lord as an offering. And what did David say? He said, no, I will not offer to God something that cost me nothing. And he paid the full price for that field, right? He brought the full thing to the Lord. All else is vain in that sense. And reconciliation and atonement, think about this, are never without cost. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. Remember this. Only by the shedding of innocent blood can we be accepted. Exodus 12, 13. All of this hearkens to Christ and what we have in Christ now. Fourth, as a substitution it's the principle of substitution. A proper offering serves as a representation and a substitute for the offerer. And it's in, sense, it's in essence saying what is done to the sacrifice is an acknowledgement of what is or ought to be done to the offerer. Right? Genesis 22, 13, that's Abraham's offering of Isaac. He looked up his eye, lifted up his eyes. It's a phrase that's great to study. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked in the thicket and there was a ram. The substitute that the Lord provided for Isaac in that sense. It's a substitute. In Isaiah 53, the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, really the Bible, if you ask me, is the whole chapter is talking about Christ as our substitute. He 
who received the punishment and the penalty that was due to us. And we can read that in detail, but we'll keep going here for the sake of time. By his wounds, we were healed. That's substitutionary concept. Fifth, and this is important, authenticity. Authenticity. God has never taken pleasure in sacrifices as such, but he desires repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Psalm 51, memorize that psalm, because we should be saying it almost every day, right? You would not delight in sacrifice. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it, right? You don't take pleasure in the flesh of bulls and goats, right? If, I, if you took pleasure in those things, I would bring it. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Psalm 51, Micah 6, 5 through 8. Let's read that. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gigal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Sorry, that's uh, Micah 6. What do I got here? Micah 6, 5 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with ten thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Right? Authenticity. We can keep going. Hosea 6, 6, Matthew 9, 13, all of these speak of that. The sacrifice offered with an evil heart can never be accepted. Proverbs 21, 27. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent, right? Neither can the blood of animals truly atone for sin, Hebrews 10.4. All of this indicates that it's the heart that is really at issue. The Levitical sacrifice was instituted to foreshadow the truly good things that have now come to us through Christ. The atonement of Christ and the purified hearts of the faithful. And Hebrews 9.13.14 is what we're going to kind of anchor on next. God ordains, and I kind of summarize this at the bottom of your first page, God ordains not only the worship, but the worshiper. So how is to be worshipped, but who is to approach, who is to draw near? He ordains not only what is to be brought near, but who is to draw near. None can approach unless the Lord draws him. John 6, 44. This is important. I love the book of Leviticus and the Old Testament representations of this. I love it. Because nowhere else do you see the holiness of God magnified. In this side of redemptive history, when we can see the loftiness, the grandeur, the glory of God, and how far separated from him we are in our sin, only then can we begin to recognize what it truly cost God to purchase us as redeemed people. And it should pour out into our hearts in thankfulness, overflowing with gratitude to God for how holy He is and how horribly sinful we are, and yet He has purchased the ability for us to draw near to God. Korban, to draw near, to approach and approach to God. Does that make sense? Any thoughts before we flip to section 2 here? Everybody still with me? I'm talking a lot. <laughs> All right. How do you mean? Well, they both brought sacrifices, but there was something different. I don't, I've heard it said it's not because one was moved and the other was willing. It's just really where the hearts of those bringing it were. Yeah. 
kind of answered your own question, but what do y'all think? Um, Jeff asked, what about Cain and Abel and their sacrifices that they brought to God? I mean, they pulled near, they brought it. They drew near, they brought it, they offered it. The sacrifice, it, in a sense, it cost them something, right? So where did Cain fall short and Abel succeed in that? Go ahead. Absolutely. The intent. Anybody else? Thought on that? What intent? Mm-hmm. And so um, the idea that uh, well, there's a lot to think about here. So by bringing those first fruits, I'm trusting the Lord's going to provide from what's left hmm. rather than bringing God the leftovers and saying, ah, here you go. And so there's, there's a significant act of faith in giving first fruits. Hmm. Uh, I think Proverbs gets to that. That verse written in Proverbs is a little bit too, right? That the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. It's not that it's just null. It's offensive. It's almost deliberately offensive. How much more so when he brings it with evil intent, right? The intent is, can not only vindicate what we're trying to do in that sense, and no one brings a sacrifice off a, a pleasing to God unless he is first called and drawn by God, right? And when we approach with that, that righteous intent to glorify God, to magnify God, that is something given to us purely through the gift of the Holy Spirit. That cannot be done in our effort. Again, if we see replete throughout his, through Scripture, we don't, he doesn't delight in sacrifice we would bring it. It's not about me gritting my teeth and giving God stuff. What can we bring to God that would be pleasing to him? What could I do for God that would ever merit his favor, right? It's a recognition of that, a full recognition of that, saying simple, nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I claim. And this is why our hymns are just replete with all this stuff. Right? We, we'll sing about this constantly and think through these concepts of God's magnificent grace poured out for us and through what it cost. His sacrifice, ultimately on the cross there, right? So it is about the heart, about approaching God. But I don't want you to miss the other aspects, which is what I was getting back to the first part of this. Yes, the heart. And we've been well taught here, right? We know Alex and, and Steve do a great job of constantly bringing us back to that concept of we must approach God with authenticity, with authenticity. Right? So it's got to be true that we're coming to the Lord, not for our sake, not because I want to look good, not because I'm trying to, in self-righteousness, please God by my attendance to church and by my singing loudly and doing all these things. You can do all of those things and utterly miss the point. I will read about in a second. When, Matt, when Jesus in Matthew says to the Pharisees, these people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. We can do all the right things. And Jesus says, in, at the end of that verse, Jesus says, in vain do they worship me. In vain. So not only is it, just not doing it right, it, Jesus says, is null. It amounts to nothing. This is not worship. It is not what you think it is. Okay? So the, the authenticity is critical, but don't forget the other pieces. It's an ordinance. God ordained. We have to approach, and that should be a terrifying thought for us in a sense. That's why I love Leviticus. The, the terror and all of the Israelites as they approached God in his holy glory and his Shekinah glory on the mountain of God and the terror and the lightning and the thunder and all those things. It's not that we should sheepishly go to the Lord in this side of glory, but we should still have that sense of reverence and awe that when we come together as the ecclesia, the called out ones, the corporate gathering of God's children to worship Him, there should be such a joyful reverence and awe as we approach God with the confidence afforded us only through what Jesus Christ has done. And as mentally, emotionally, we hearken back to what Christ purchased, we look forward as we come in with great confidence, with joy. And it can't help, if you're really thinking this way, it can't help but just burst over in your heart in song. 
and glorious truth proclaiming with our lips, the fruit of lips, an inward reality of what Christ has done as we savor that and delight in that. Okay? Good. Section 2, true worship. So we're going to kind of go to the New Testament here. I'm going to give you a couple verses. Um, John 4, 23-24. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The side note here, notice it's not spirit or and, and juxtaposed to the body. It's not there's a spiritual worship like this emotional thing in the body, which is a physical thing. It's spirit and truth. They're alongside each other. Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Wow. Maybe another time we can plumb the depths of that. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. We're going to get at that. So what does it mean to worship God? The external expression here. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Through Christ, it says through him in the actual text, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That's where I get that phrase, a sacrifice of praise. The Hebrews, just, Alex was just teaching through all this over the last year, a sacrifice of praise, hearkening back to this whole korban, Levitical concept, and all of these five points, these concepts of what that sacrifice meant to the hearers here to bring this. Let us continually, not just every Sunday, not just every once in a while, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is where I get that duality of the expression of that morality, the fruit of lips. And that comes in many forms through speaking, encouraging, admonishing, teaching, correcting, training, all those things through the scriptures, but also singing and an expression of that. And then the fruit of hands is what I'm calling it here. But it says doing good or do not neglect to do good physically do things to do good for others and acts of love and kindness for the glory of God to other people. All right, so we're going to anchor more on the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of the lips part of this. The doing good is there as well, but the fruit of the lips is what we're going to start anchoring on for the, the last part of this. And we're going to talk more about the musical aspect of it. So question for you, why, should, why do we sing? Why don't we just say the words of a hymn or recite them or get up there and just speak them kind of monotonously? What are your thoughts on that? You know, a few weeks ago, I was on a trip with FedEx, and I had a layover in Indianapolis, and the Eagles were there. And I had no idea, but I was going to dinner with my captain. who's a herd of, you know, baby boomers going to a, uh, no offense, going to uh, this uh, auditorium. I was like, what's going on? And they're like, because the Eagles are here. I'm like, sweet. I, I on impulse, bought a ticket because I love the Eagles. I'm out of a teetotal over some of this stuff. But I ended up getting into, it's, it's a band, sorry. Um, but... The Eagles are a band. I think I was the youngest person in that entire auditorium, and it was awesome. Opened by Steve Miller Band, who's 80 years old and still rocking. It was incredible. But I, I couldn't help, but as soon as the Eagles came out, and they started singing Seven Bridges Road, and I just couldn't help but look around me. And there were people, tears pouring down their eyes as they're just, this is my band for whatever reason, hearkening back to yesteryear and all the memories associated with that music and everything else there. 
they were just weeping, coming apart at the seams as this band comes out on stage and does that. And I, I love the music, but this, it didn't quite evoke that same response in me. All right? So music is powerful. And it's different for different people. Style, modes, matter. And again, we're not going to get into the aesthetic side of this. I would love to talk on that at some point because there's a lot to be said there biblically about style of music. But you're right. Music is powerful. Music has the power to tie the head to the heart in a way that is unique. To pull, about, pull out the knowledge of what, what they're singing about, for the Eagles at least, is them singing about memories and yesteryear and all these things that were really vain and not good. But it tied that to emotional responses. And people were overcome with emotion, right? Music has the power to do that with us as well. And like all things, Christians should desire to redeem. Yeah. Who do you? Yes. Mm. You're anticipating my points. Nice. That's, that's down in uh, part four. That's why we sing. Singing helps us remember God's word. We're going to get there. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know where it is in Scripture, but I remember that in some place in Scripture it says God sings. All three persons of the Trinity sing. All three persons of the Trinity sing. That's a fascinating thought. And I'll get those references for you. I read them. I don't think I wrote them down here. Here's a question. Can someone who is mute sing praises to God? How? Yes. I think we would be grossly remiss to assume that a person who is mute, a Christian believing, cannot sing praises to the Lord. And why? Ephesians 5, 18. That's further down. You guys are great. You're anticipating all this stuff. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. With your heart. Now, that is not an excuse for everybody who can sing, okay? It's both and. But with your heart, giving thanks, joyful noise, right? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's back up a little bit. You guys are rolling right ahead. Um, music is an unspeakably great gift. God could have made a world without color. He could have made food without taste. He could have made a world that had many thousands of radio stations that just did not exist, right? But he has given us music. And the fact that music is an in, a international, a universal reality speaks to its significance. It is everywhere. It's in every culture throughout all of history for all time and always will be. It's everywhere. So it is, if nothing else, that speaks to the significance of music and its particular staying power that you read about, right? Um, anyway, all people sing. We all, all of us sing about what's important to us. We sing our national anthem. We sing our school fight songs. I'm a Marine. We love the Marines hymn. And they call it that specifically, the Marines hymn. It's not the Marine Corps hymn. It's the Marines hymn. It's for each individual Marine. It's a statement of allegiance and declaration of our history and all those things of lore of what we did before. And we're very passionate about teaching every single Marine that comes along how to, the words of that song. We recite it every year. Sing it. Marines actually sing, believe it or not. And it's rough, but they do sing. And every year, 10 of November, 1775, when the Marine Corps is born, they sing that hymn over and over again to remind us of our identity in this group, as this martial group, okay? So we sing about things that are important. And like I said, it has about a tie uh, knowledge to emotion. So if they sing, we sing. We understand the importance of singing and why it matters. Why would we not sing? What are some reasons that we, and I'm just talking now specifically versus Christians, why would we come into the Lord's house together with all our brothers and sisters, with all the joy of the full realization of what has been done to allow us to approach God, Korban, to draw near 
to the living God of all creation and sing to him and not sing? Why might we not? And this is soul-searching in this for all of us. Why would we not? What keeps us from doing that? Yeah, so maybe um, not singing well in that sense? Yeah, vanity is one thing that sometimes keeps people from singing. Like they, they'll hear of being heard and not doing well. Vanity. Can I pick on you? I love Alex. He cannot sing. But man, he belts it out up there. I'm, I'm, I love it, brother, because I look at you and I see that you are in the men, you're mentally acknowledging what we are saying to the Lord. And thankfully, you turn your mic off, but you sing and you do it, and I love it because it, en- yeah, it encourages us to do likewise, to do that, and it's so good. I'm I'm going to put this out there. I think we, as believers, should be astonished. If someone comes into our midst on a Sunday morning and claims to be born again and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and refuses to sing. I say that again. I think we should be astonished if someone comes in to join us with worshiping the Lord and refuses to sing. Truly. Sure. 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 I would submit. And that's all true. Just like a mute person. There are people who, have, who might not be able to in that sense. But I think nine times out of ten, our excuses for not singing are not something the Lord would excuse. But why? Because the question is not has the Lord given you a voice, but has the Lord given you a song? Not has God given you a voice that is talented and skilled. God is far less concerned with the instrumentation, the instrumentality, the skill of the players is about, as he is about the heart of the worshipers approaching to worship him. God is seeking such worshipers. Not, he's not seeking a five-star harpist or an amazing tubist or everyone else that has incredible skills and praise God for them because that's wonderful. He's seeking hearts that long to draw near and worship him. And when we sing him, even without a voice, even with challenges and, and certain things, there are ways to sing and glorify the God and encourage your brothers and sisters in the same way, even when we think. We I think, go ahead. Yeah. And what I enjoy what the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. Hmm. Truly, right? And we're kind of harking back to what Sally was saying earlier. Um, in our Presbyterian circles and all, we, we focus a lot on orthodoxy, which leads to orthopraxy, right? That, that right thinking drives right conduct. It's the, the heart being sanctified through the Word of God then helps us to actually act and behave and do what is pleasing to the Lord. And that is wholeheartedly Scripture. But sometimes I wonder if we don't think also about the orthopathos, the rightly ordered emotions that also do come out of that. It, emotions are not everything. Do not get me wrong. We're not trying to whip ourselves up into some sort of emotional high and attain it. We're not, the goal is not the emotion. The goal is the truth and the Word of God. That's why to worship in spirit and truth right alongside each other. As the head acknowledges right things and knows knowledge, right things about God, the heart responds and treasures and loves and desires God duly. The old adage, I think it was, as we know God truly, we honor him duly. 
right? As we know God rightly, when the head is thinking rightly about God through his word, sanctified through the word of God, the emotions in the heart respond in overwhelming thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is always right alongside that thing. It's a thanksgiving in full recognition of what God has done. And you cannot help but have a sense of true emotion as we delight in that in God. Don't be afraid of that. Don't let it get out of control. But it is when rightly sanctified through the word, singing overflows in our hearts to God. And we proclaim that truth about him with joy and thanksgiving, right? Colossians 3.16, first of all, we are commanded to sing. So this isn't me saying we should get up there and sing, y'all. God commands us to sing. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness, there it is again, in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we don't have an excuse in that sense. We sing to God, either whether it's with our mouth, if we have a mouth, or with our heart, if the Lord has not allowed us to be able to speak. We have the command of God to do that, and it's a good, rich, rich gift. So I'll close with this. Actually, we got time, so we're doing pretty good. This is uh, from Bob Coughlin, the three R's of why we worship, why we sing. Bob Coughlin is a pastor up in Louisville, Kentucky. He kind of heads up Sovereign Grace Music. They put out a lot of um, musical hymnody. And uh, these are the three. Singing helps us remember God's word. And this is kind of from Colossians 3.16. Singing helps us respond to God's grace, and singing helps us reflect God's glory. Remember God's word, respond to God's grace, and reflect God's glory. Singing helps us remember God's word. I think this is an easy one, and Sally already hit on this. Music has powerful staying power. How many little jingles in my head that have existed from my childhood can I not get out of my head just because they're catchy, right? I can sing them to you now, but I'll spare you the pain because it'll be in your head all morning for worship. It helps us remember things. That's why in classical education, they sing songs about timelines. They use music to remember and call facts and things back to mind. It helps us remember God's word. I love this quote. Uh, It's from Andrew Fletcher, an 18th century Scottish political thinker. He says, give me the making of the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws. What do you remember more, the hymnody of our theology in this church or our systematic theology? The hymnody should sing of our systematic theology. But it's the hymns and the music and the tune that calls those things to mind, I think, far more powerfully than the rote stuff. stuff. I love systematic theology, and you can read it and do it, but that's not what's coming into my head kind of throughout the week, probably to my shame. But the music, the hymns are what are always kind of in the back of my mind and what I'm thinking through. And I hear my children sing them uh, for all that, right? It helps us remember God's word. This is why we sing. We don't just say it. We sing it. Two, singing helps us respond to God's grace. Respond to God's grace. That's from Colossians there. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. It's a response, too, to God's word. That thankfulness that you see everywhere, that thankfulness for what God has done, the purchase of what it costs God through Christ to bring us to God. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to what? To bring you to God. To bring you to God. That's Christ died to bring us to God. How can we not with every morning, more every morning, but every Sabbath especially, to draw together to sing that and proclaim that to the Lord with joy and rapturous joy in our heart, right? It's a response to the word. And singing helps us reflect God's glory, reflect God's glory. And that's that phrase there, everything in the name of the Lord. Everything we do is in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's how we reflect God's glory. How do we reflect God's glory? By singing. Really, several ways. It implies bringing God glory, and one of it is unity. We sing together. 
Everybody's not out there singing different songs, right? We're not all kind of doing our own little beat. We have beat, rhythm, meter. We have melody and harmony to match the two. We sing together with unified voices in our hearts. And one of my favorite things to do is just to look around a little bit when we're worshiping. Because as we sing, if you look up here, uh, Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord. So there's a sense of we're addressing one another as we sing. That's why we call it corporate. And then it's to God. That's why we call it worship, corporate worship. We're singing to others and to God, ultimately to glorify God. But we're also singing for the blessing and benefit of those around us as we join our voices in a unified song to worship the Lord with a unified heart and purpose. People have asked me before, you know, when y'all was moving around a lot with the military and I go to a new place, how do you find a new church? Or how do you, you know, when you're going to a new church just cold, what's, how do you kind of figure out if it's a healthy church or not? And there's a lot of ways, you can think through this in myriad ways, but one of the things I used to love to do is just when we're singing, just look around. Look around at the people. Are the people singing? Are they just full of joy and worshiping the Lord? Or are they just kind of head down? Not really, you know, saying it, going through the motions, or, you know, being apart, but not really apart, you know? And that's a good little clue, indicator, about maybe the health of a church and how well we're doing that. So, unity, we reflect God's glory that way. All three persons of the Trinity sing. We've talked about that before. All, the God does it. We should do it, right? So, the Holy Trinity does this in the sense. And it anticipates singing in glory. Dr. Herb is a musical uh, director that our family knows. And he used to always say before he would begin teaching or something, he would pretty much say, we don't know a lot about heaven, but what we do know is we will be singing. We'll be singing a lot. So let's learn to love it and let's get good at it. Right? We're going to be doing this a long time. A long time. And there's already a song and a chorus going right now in glory, constantly before the throne of God, claiming holy, 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 singing it to the Lord, singing his praises. We're going to be doing this a lot. If we don't love it now, how are we going to love it then, right? Learn to love it and learn to get good at it as we do it. I'm going to close this here in just a minute, but uh, any thoughts on that before we uh, wrap up? Marshall, how would you counsel somebody if they were to say, uh, I don't sing because I don't have a good voice? Hmm. What, again, is the purpose of our singing? Are we concerned about, uh, is, is God upset at you? Yeah, it's not, is, is God going to laugh at you for singing to him with a, with a bad voice? What is the real root of that concern? Is it God or is it everybody else? Right? Is it, I'm afraid the Lord is going to be displeased with my crummy voice? And if that's it, then, and brother and sister, fear not. The Lord has sanctified even your bad pitch and delights in your heart and delights in you offering to him a sacrifice of play for him. But usually... Almost always the case is we're far more concerned with the opinions of people around us, that people are going to hear us and just be like, oh, it's a squawking bird and a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal, right? Friends, do not be concerned with that. That's pride. That's the fear of man. That's sin. That's not pleasing to the Lord. And for all of us who are hearing that brother and sister that are not singing so well, just like expositional preaching, we should be expositional listeners too, right? Expositional singers. So as they sing, just like with little voices in the congregation, sometimes hard to hear and all this, we should sanctify our own efforts as we focus and sing and give glory to God and say, Lord, thank you for sweet Marshall. He sounds awful, but praise you for giving him a song in his heart that is willing and eager to sing your praises. Thank you for Alex singing his heart out up there, even though he knows he can't sing that well. Okay? I'm going to keep going back to that. So it's not about has God given you a voice. 
has God given you a song? Psalm 40, maybe, oh, maybe not here. Psalm 40, we're teaching the kids to memorize Psalm 40. One of the verses there is, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He put a new song in my heart. Talking about the salvation, drew me out of deep waters, put my feet on a rock, the salvific experience. Part of that is God putting a new song in your heart. All right, to close, back to number 16, Korah. What happened to Korah, who offered an unauthorized, arrogant sacrifice to God? The earth opened and swallowed him and his wives and his stuff and his little ones, all of that with it. If you're like me, I had a hard time with that. All of his stuff, everything was swallowed up and destroyed. What did they do? Actually, we'll get to this in a minute. Ten chapters later, in Numbers 26, we learned that all of Korah's sons did not die. Numbers chapter 16, or Numbers 26. Totality, all of Korah and all those who rebelled with him that the Lord cast judgment on, he swallowed up and destroyed and went alive into Sheol forever. Korah's sons and legacy. Korah was a Kohathite. He's a grandson of, great-grandson of Levi via Itzar. The Kohathites were gatekeepers of the tabernacle. Despite the destruction of Korah and those who belonged to him, his sons did not all perish. The Korahites were a Levitical group descended from his sons, also referred to as the sons of Korah. Have you ever heard that? The sons of Korah. They supported David against Saul. The Korahites, consistent with their status as Kohathites, were recorded primarily as gatekeepers. The Korahites are also recorded as having been a guild of temple singers, along with the Asaphites. Heman, one of Korah's descendants, is listed as one of the three men appointed by David to lead the service of song in the temple, alongside Asaph and the Merorites. Two groups of psalms are recorded as having been composed by the sons of Korah. That's Psalm 42 to 49 and 84 to 88, except for 86 in there. So when you start to read this and you get this, this backdrop of Korah, they were swallowed alive, destroyed. When you begin to read some of these psalms, they just read differently. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 42.2. We will not fear, though the earth give way. Psalm 46.2. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Psalm 84. My life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. They just read differently, right? So even in the midst of judgment, God shows mercy to the descendants. And not only that, what did they do with the plates, the bronze censers that they offered unauthorized sacrifices to the Lord? Y'all remember? Later, number 16, they took those bronze plates and hammered them and plated the brazen altar with them. The brazen altar, when we come and approach the tabernacle, the prince approach the holy presence of God, the first thing we're confronted with is the brazen altar where the sacrifices were tied and killed. They're saying, we cannot approach the holy God without sacrifice, empty-handed. We have to approach. It is ordained by God how we do this. And the sons of Korah, the people who were destroyed, his very descendants were the ones who taught the people of Israel, how to approach God. Who better fit for that than those who witnessed their lineage wiped out by doing this arrogantly before the Lord? So whatever heritage we have of not singing or being stoic and thinking that's somehow pleasing or men sing but only women sing, men don't sing, women only sing, that nonsense, let's throw it aside and like the sons of Korah, rise up and rather be a gatekeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness and teach one another and encourage one another how to approach the living God with joy with all these things, right? All the way back to the beginning. Approach, sacrifice at cost, the substitute for me, and authenticity with true worship before the Lord. Amen?